before we jump into this episode, this is James from Fringe Voices. I just wanted to let you know about Anchor. Uh, Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. It's free, and they have plenty of tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. In addition, Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more places. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M to get started. Thank you. Hey, this is James Ayler. Thanks for listening to the Fringe Voices podcast. Fringe Voices is a show in which I speak with fellow residents of the Bronx and throughout the world that have radical or fringe ideas. For the past few episodes, I've interviewed interesting people from the Bronx. Today, I would like to welcome a guest that doesn't reside in New York City or the Bronx. I will be speaking with New York Times bestselling author and professor of economics at George Mason University, Brian Kaplan about his book, Open Borders, The Science and Ethics of Immigration, which is an interesting read in a graphic novel format. We also discuss some of his other radical views and his future book about poverty. Thanks again, and enjoy the show. Hey, Brian. Thanks so much for joining the Fringe Voices show today. I appreciate you taking your time. How are you doing? I'm doing great. So I wanted to bring uh, someone from outside the Bronx to talk about uh, some radical viewpoints that people may not think about. And one of the, the um, examples is you with your great book called Open Borders. So, but before we get into the book, I just wanted you to introduce yourself for some people that may not be familiar with you and then sort of introduce how you got into your profession. Sure. Uh, so my name is Brian Kaplan. I'm a professor of economics at George Mason University, and I blog for EconLog. And now, thanks to my new book, I'm a New York Times bestselling author. His Open Borders made the New York Times bestseller list. How I got into my profession? Well, so I'm a professor. So there's a very narrow, rigid, hierarchical way that you do it. And so first, I was an undergraduate at UC Berkeley. And then I used that to get into the PhD program at Princeton. And from there, I was able to get this job that I have and uh, George Mason, and I've been here ever since. Awesome. Could you speak about your, your book a little bit, uh, the Open Borders book? Um, because it's kind of an unusual book in that you also, it's also in the form of a graphic, uh, like comic type book too, which makes it accessible, I think, to more average readers. Could you speak on that? Uh, yeah, so uh, Open Borders, The Science and Ethics of Immigration is my first graphic novel. It's a nonfiction graphic novel. So, you know, graphic novel basically just means a comic book with higher literary aspirations. And nonfiction means that it's like a documentary. So just like most movies are fictional, but some are documentaries. So too, most comic books are fiction, but some are factual. I got a lot of inspiration from this other book called The Cartoon History of the Universe. And uh, so I've written you know, three other standard books before, but for this one, I just wanted to try something different. I'm a big fan of this nonfiction graphic novel genre, 
And I also thought that a lot of the arguments would work better drawn. There's a lot of complicated issues surrounding immigration, and I thought that if I could combine words and pictures, I could not only address the issues more clearly, but also, like you said, get more people interested. For, for all my books, I always start by saying I'm a researcher and I want this book to be enlightening for other researchers, other people who specialize in this area and know their stuff. So I, I always want to hit that point. Uh, but then for my other books, I always try to also expand the audience so it's not just people who specialize in the narrow topic. I want to get social scientists in general, graduate students, people who are good undergraduates or were good undergraduates like journalists. And then for this book, I think I kept all those audiences, but I just expanded it more. So really think it can be enjoyed all the way down by like seven-year-old precocious kids, right? So this is the only book I've ever written where my five-year-old daughter was looking over my shoulder while I was reading it. So I think that I did a pretty good job on that. Yeah, and I think your success with uh, being on the bestsellers list also speak to that. Um, so it's not only, I think, the topic, but also the style that you wrote in, which I think did make it um, enjoyable. I, I'm, I mean, I have to say, I'm, I'm not, this isn't like a very exciting topic, although with the current climate, I think that it's a very uh, prescient topic, but it- Wait, 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 it is or is not, hold on, is it is or is not exciting? It it. No, it made you made it exciting with this book. I yeah. was going to say, see, see, I would think this is a topic that would excite almost anyone because it gets people so angry, and that's why the slogan "Open Borders" it's one where it's usually imposed upon another person involuntarily. Like you believe in open borders, rawr. Yeah, um, so, I mean, you know, and I wanted to take it back because I'd say most people accused of believing in open borders don't, and I really do. So I wanted to write a book explaining why it is I think it's actually a good idea, contrary to almost everyone. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about your your concept and your actionable ideas with regards to the open borders. Uh, you know, we're speaking from, or I'm speaking from the Bronx, where we do have a lot of uh, immigrants, and so I think this is kind of an issue that's close to home here. So, could you speak a little bit about your your open borders uh, concept? Uh, sure. So, simple slogan is you know, anyone can take a job anywhere, regardless of where you're born. So it means that unless someone belongs in jail, they're free to migrate to any country where they want and get a job without having the government say, sorry, you have to be a citizen to work. So that's really the heart of it is you know, free migration, letting people live and work where they want. And again, the, you know, the heart of the argument about why the effects of this would be very good, contrary to almost everyone, is just that right now there's so much great human talent that is trapped in low productivity countries. And you really can unleash that talent just by letting people move from dysfunctional places to places that work a lot better. So you really can not just greatly improve a Haitian's life by letting him move from Haiti to Florida, but he can then contribute so much more to the world because there's when he's in Haiti, he's contributing almost nothing to the world economy and let him move. Then he sells his products and he has a lot more to sell here because he's able to accomplish a lot more. You know, as I often ask, just imagine what you or I would be able to accomplish in Haiti it's not very much. So a lot of the problem is with the country, not the people. True. And then I know that some people object to this idea. Um, what would you say to people that, for example, we can talk about like high skilled labor, how that should be uh, like, there should be open borders for that. But then I think some people would have a negative uh, response to bringing lots of low skilled labor. What would be your response to that? 
Yeah, well, I'd say, you know, the argument for high versus low skilled immigration is basically the same, namely, all these kinds of labor are being wasted in places where they aren't able to express their full talent. And, you know, so like a janitor in the U.S., he's a lot more useful than he is in Haiti because he's saving the time of other people who are part of the modern high-tech economy. So, you know, just shining shoes. You know, if you save Bill Gates five minutes a time, that is a lot more a lot more productive for mankind than saving me five minutes of time. Right. So, you know, like, like a lot of the book is written to against this idea that some kinds of labor that was, you know, some kinds of people are basically just trash people where they're worthless and you don't want them and they're parasites. And I see that's just not true. You know, a farmer is a useful member of society, a janitor is a useful member of society, a nanny, a gardener. These are all people who contribute. And if you let them move to rich countries, they can contribute a lot more than if they're stuck back at home. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I appreciate you uh, bringing these perspectives to light because I'd like we've talked about, I don't think this is a common um, common uh, narrative to have surrounding Im- immigration and open borders. Is there anything else you would like to talk about that may be a radical viewpoint with regards to the open borders concept? Right. Well, so, I mean, a lot of what I do in the book is to say I totally understand why most people think it's a terrible idea. I've grown up in the society. I've heard all of the arguments against and then I've just got chapters going through each of these sets of complaints and saying, you know, either they're completely wrong, like this idea that open borders would cause poverty when actually it would unleash great riches. And then there's a bunch of other complaints where I say you know, the evidence is more mixed, but at least they're nothing compared to these gains that we're talking about. And then just in terms of radicalism, you know, another part of the book is just questioning this idea that you should think of countries as being like a club where the current owners are entitled to do whatever they want in that club. And I say, it's not like that. You know, so what immigration laws do is it's not, it's not like a law saying, I don't want people in my house. It's like a law saying, I don't want people in your house. Mm. And the owner then says, wait, well, I want them. It's like, well, too bad. So I don't want them in my neighborhood, even though the homeowner actually is fine with it. You spoke about gains too, which I'm interested in. Uh, I'm not an economist by trade by any means, but what would be some of the gains uh, that would be beneficial for, for example, the U.S. economy if we opened our borders up? Well, it just comes down to a lot more production, right? So you let someone in from Haiti right now, they are basically producing nothing that is of any value to people that are here. Let them come here, they get a job, and then they start producing more stuff that is valuable to people here. And again, especially by virtue of the much higher productivity of the American economy, they're able to just contribute a lot more. So this is obvious for agriculture, where one laborer here produces many times more than one laborer could in Mexico or Haiti. And of course, also for manufacturing, where one manufacturing worker here can do a lot more than one manufacturing person in in another country. And then furthermore, for services, this is where it's a little bit more subtle, but it just comes down to the whole point of services is really to save time. And if you save the time of people who are contributing more to the world economy, you are indirectly contributing yourself. It makes a lot of sense. Um, I think we've had a pretty good discussion on uh, the Open Borders book. Um, and I, I try to keep these interviews brief just for the sake of people's attention spans. But I, you've definitely pa- packed a lot of information in on that concept. Uh, so the next thing I wanted to jump into is I saw that you're writing a, another forthcoming book in 2021, I believe, about poverty. Huh? Mm-hmm. Could you speak about your your the outline of that a little bit? Uh, right. 
So a lot of the motivation for the book is this. In earlier times, people often talked about the deserving versus the undeserving poor. And in some ways, that's fallen totally out of fashion. It's not the kind of thing politicians want to talk about, researchers want to talk about. And yet, you really can still see it in the way that people think about poverty and who they want to help and what priorities there are, and even in the laws. So, like, why there's so much focus on children, for example, in poverty programs. It makes a lot of sense if you think about, well, the children didn't choose these problems. They didn't cause the condition. So, let's help them first. So, anyway, I wanted to, first of all, go and take that idea and, you know, and redeem it and say, it's actually an idea that makes a lot of sense. It's not just, it's not something we should be ashamed of. Instead, it's an idea that really should guide not just government policy, but also philanthropy. And then from there, I want to go and apply it to modern conditions. So partly I apply it just by repeating what I said in Open Borders and say, look, what immigration restrictions cause enormous poverty and they cause it for people who are not to blame for the fact that they happen to be to choose the wrong parents and be born in a poor country. And basically, these are laws that try to stop people from solving their own problem or working their way out of poverty. And so they're, they're very bad laws. And essentially, they, these are laws where, say, that, you know, they, they are causing a lot of poverty you know, for people that otherwise could have escaped it on their own. Uh, then in the book, I'm also going to talk a lot about bad government policy. You know, especially in third world countries, policy has generally been a disaster. I mean, and it mostly comes down to this. The main problem in poor countries is not that workers are being uh, are being oppressed by big business or anything like that. The main problem is that there are hardly any jobs. The countries are largely based upon self-employment of people who really are not trained or able to run a business very well. So, you know, in poor countries, the best jobs are the ones where you're working for multinational corporations, but there are hardly any such jobs in most poor countries. And instead, it's much more common just to see someone desperately trying to run a business selling hats to tourists on the beach or trying to run a farm without modern methods of scientific farm management and so on. So, and I say there's a lot of government policies in poor countries that have really strangled their economies and just discouraged the formation of business and especially discourage, discourage foreign business from setting up because I say foreign business is really the best way to transform an economy for the better, even though, of course, a lot of radical voices are very resentful of the amount of foreign business that already is there, but I just say that's just wrong. Uh, and you know, then the last part of the book is I talk about the connection between personal behavior and poverty and say there's actually a lot of evidence that even in rich countries, you can, if you really want to, impoverish yourself with short-sighted impulsive behavior. And again, this is something where I think you know, most of the poverty is actually caused by the bad economic policies of poor countries, as well as by immigration policies in rich countries. Also talk a lot about housing regulation that makes it hard to build cheap housing. But you know, there's, those are not the only causes. I also say that a lot of people really have caused their own poverty through, uh, through impulsive behavior. And especially the number one is just impulsive sex because it's very temporarily pleasurable behavior with very long-lasting life consequences. So if you go and have unprotected sex when you're not ready to take care of a kid, then you do create a big problem for your own, for yourself and for uh, and basically you create a child who's very likely to grow up in poverty because you haven't planned things out for him very well. And again, it's not like people don't know that sex causes children or anything like that. There is effective contraception. So you know, to say that this is irresponsible behavior and people should do otherwise seems though unpopular to be a reasonable thing to say. Yeah, which I, I could imagine would be the, with regards to the, you know, unprotected sex, uh, living as a, as a, 
almost 13 year resident of New York City, I do see this play out often with many, uh, and this is, I think this is going to be a radical viewpoint, but many low income individuals are having not just one child, but it's going to be multiple children, which are going to then be living in poverty. Um, Yeah. So I think that uh, that's actually a great point to bring up. Um, but then you also, I think you also make the, the reverse argument too, which is, it's not just, you know, you're, this also like some, uh, laws and regulations that yeah. also, yeah, you know, I mean, like, you know, poverty is a really complicated issue. And as I've been preparing for this, I always just spend a long time reading. So I've been reading on it for about a year and haven't really written anything yet, but there are so many people who want to act like it's simple. And I say, it's not actually simple. There's many different causes, no one cause, if removed, would change, would would, would uh, to make the problem go away. And you know, a lot of what I want to do is just to put together a lot of evidence judiciously and you know, see where things land. Um, yeah, it sounds like a, a great forthcoming book. And then you also mentioned one thing about housing regulations. Mm-hmm. I, I I don't know if you feel comfortable talking about it now, but is yeah, there- sure a particular example that you could highlight, because I know living in New York city, this is actually uh, a a pretty common issue here is there's not a lot of affordable housing. Right. Right. So if you take two weeks of economics class, they'll show you supply and demand. And one of the things they'll show you is if you keep the supply of something really low, the price will be really high. And this is not just my view of what's gone wrong in housing markets. This is, I'd say, the view of almost every economist who has looked at it, regardless of their political views, which is that housing is unaffordable, especially in desirable areas, because state and local governments make it really hard to build anything, right? So, meaning most obviously, so in Brooklyn, there are almost certainly going to be a bunch of regulations limiting the heights of buildings and making it hard to build taller buildings and to knock down smaller buildings, replace them with taller buildings. And if you would go and replace the small buildings with skyscrapers, there'd be a lot more housing, right? And of course, any one building doesn't make a big, I mean, it doesn't have a huge effect on price. But if you let people increase the number of housing units by 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 percent, then there is no doubt that you will see a large decline in price. And again, though, there is really no non-regulatory reason for this. People often say, well, Manhattan's an island. You can't build more there. And it's like, yes, you totally can. You build up. You bulldoze Greenwich Village and you put skyscrapers <laughs> there, which is what probably almost every property owner there would love to do if they could just get permission. But unfortunately, there is a extremely active NIMBY, not in my backyard, not not in my backyard, not only movement, but it's an ideology. It's an ideology where anytime someone comes along with a practical way of building people more homes, instead of people saying, yay, let's build more homes, people come up with an endless list of complaints and whining. Oh, this will block the light. Oh, this will lead to traffic. Oh, it's going to go and mess up the character of the neighborhood. Oh, this isn't what... And it's like, shut up. (laughs) These complaints are trivial compared to the size of the problem. Let's solve the housing crisis by building a lot of houses so that people can can live in affordable housing. And furthermore, when you think about these complaints, there are also so many good side effects of having more population density. You know, it makes public transportation more affordable. It gives people more choices for businesses they can shop at, more choices of restaurants, more choices of jobs. So the way that people sit around and only think about the downsides and hardly ever even consider the upsides, it is just people where you know, it's like, why can't you just bend a bit 
right? And especially as a lot of the research says, you don't have to get rid of all zoning regulation to get a lot of the gains. Just dial it down in places like New York City down to the normal American level uh, so that the construction industry can solve this problem, which is very severe. Sure. Yeah, it is very severe here. Um, and I know that there's a lot of organizations and, and government policy that's trying to go into making more affordable housing. Uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll be talking about this for decades to come. Um, right. Well, yeah. So if you do it that way, it will be decades to come because these other approaches are just nowhere near the magnitude that you need. You could go and have the government double the stock of public housing would barely make a dent in the problem because it's just, just not much of it out there. And again, there's a reason why it's not much about their government isn't good at building homes, right? Yeah, now, exactly. Costs are much higher. They're not good at managing properties. So, you know, like, you know, public housing is not the kind of thing people are eager to move into unless, of course, the price is kept insanely low because government doesn't manage the properties very well. And so, you know, I mean, like this is something where either industry is going to solve it or the problem will just fester. And, you know, probably the fest is going to be festering to say, the, you know, the main source of hope is just that not everywhere in the country is equally dysfunctional. So in most of Texas, you can still build tons of new homes. And that's a lot of the reason why so much of the country is moving there is because there you can go and your money goes far because the construction industry is allowed to do its job in Texas, unlike in New York City or San Francisco or San Jose, where the construction industry is operating under the weight of a thousand chains. Yeah, it's true. And it, you do speak about, I, I mean, I don't want to, delve into this too much but with the new york city housing authority there's been numerous issues with them yeah, running sure. you know public housing and so uh we have seen time and time again that they're not good as you say as well at uh building mm -hmm. or managing properties yep uh, um i do appreciate you taking the time to talk about your open books uh a graphic novel and then also your forthcoming book and i really do want people to reach out to it but I, I just want to conclude with a couple of things, and that is, uh, and I ask most of the people that come on the show, this is like, we've already talked about, you have some very radical viewpoints, especially with regards to open borders and, and let's say some poverty things too. But do you have any other fringe or radical <laughs> views that uh, others may find interesting? Uh, yeah, well, I've got, uh, I mean, the way I have so many, I don't think that we could talk about them uh, in, in much depth. <laughs> uh, my book about the case against education, um, you know, it's a lot of the book is uh, is ultimately just arguing for cutting spending on public education, right? Which I think is not only greatly overrated, but I think that the high level of access that we have has not really caused a lot. Uh, you know, it's not it's not opened doors to skilled jobs so much as just created a lot of credential inflation where you need to have fancy degrees even to not have your application thrown out. So there's that. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of other stuff, but. I think I've probably given you enough food for thought for these ideas that I have. A lot of what I do when I try to sell radical ideas is not to sell them all at once, but just that, to narrow it down and just say, all right, look, I could be crazy about everything else, but here's one thing I'm not crazy about. Yeah, I like that. I like your approach to that. Um, and who is one person or group of people that has inspired you to this day to do the work that you do? Let's see. So there's a, a philosopher at the University of Colorado named Michael Humer, who's written a great book, The Problem of Political Authority. That one is a big inspiration to me for sure. Let's see. I just have a lot of colleagues who are fantastic and inspiring. So you know, Tyler Cowen, uh, who's a very famous author. Uh, oh, yeah. A very close friend of mine. So he's been a big inspiration to me. And 
Yeah, I mean, I say I also I get a lot of inspiration from my kids. Uh, really, I mean, you know, they're not, uh, you know, they're not authors yet or anything like that. But just in terms of you know, continuing to care enough about the world to want to keep making a better place, you know, being a parent does keep me motivated. Yeah, and actually, I wasn't going to get into this, but I, I, I kind of do because I'm a parent as well. I have a two-year-old uh-huh. daughter, and I noticed that you have a book about. Uh, I, I'm 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 not getting the title specifically, yeah. but yeah, it's yeah. About self, having... selfish reasons to have more kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could do you mind just talking yeah. a, a, for a couple minutes about sure. that? Yeah. So this is a book where I begin by saying there's a lot of scientific evidence that's accumulated on the nature nurture question over the last 50 years, and what the science says is actually that nurture is greatly overrated and nature is greatly underrated. The main reason why kids in rich countries turn uh, from successful families in rich countries turn out so well is actually heredity rather than because of favorable upbringing. And then I say that if this is true, it really is a big critique of helicopter parenting, this idea that you need to go and do this high-effort, unpleasant style of parenting in order to give your kids a decent opportunity in life. Right. And so, you know, step one is just to tell people they can safely reconsider their parenting strategy and just relax if they're so inclined. So, like I said, you know, like if there's an activity your kid likes it, you like it, great, no problem. But if there's something that you're doing that's unpleasant for the sake of some alleged future gain, I just say the evidence really is not there that there is much such gain. And then the second inference that I draw from this is you know, if you once you have gone and reassessed your parenting style, you should also reassess the number of kids you want to have. So I say the science really basically gives parents like a 25% off coupon for the for the kids that they have, like not <laughs> just in terms of money, but in time. And then, of course, the obvious thing to do with a 25% off coupon is to use it when you make your purchase. But the second thing is to reconsider how much you want to have in your shopping basket. So I do argue in the book that once you have reconsidered your parenting style, you should actually think about having more kids. And I say, out of all of the stuff that I've done, this has had by far the most real influence. I've probably had a hundred different people tell me that I've convinced them to have another kid, and there are probably a lot more people out there that haven't told me. I think. So, <laughs> I mean, in terms of the way that economists usually measure things, this has created over a billion dollars worth of value with a book that I wrote in two years. So, I feel pretty good about that. And just you know, I mean, I don't know, like, what's the difference between this and my other books? It's just that it's a lot easier to persuade an individual who can actually change their life than to go and persuade the electorate to change policy. So there's that. Yeah, definitely appreciate you bringing that up. I know, uh, you know, as parents, we always think that just being like a helicopter type parent is the best way to go about it. But I do look forward to reading this book to, um, to sort of combat these ideas, especially that I, I myself have too. Yeah. So um, thank you so much, Brian, for taking the time today again and for speaking about so many different subjects that I think we, we hit upon uh, a few, maybe not so much in depth, um, but we did touch upon them, which I think will give people some food for thought. Uh, you definitely do have some great radical viewpoints um, that can be actionable as well. Uh, for people that do want to reach out to you on social media or purchase your books, where should they go on the internet to find you? Right. Well, so Amazon is usually the easiest way to get a book, although it's also in physical bookstores, Barnes and Noble, and so on. And then on social media, I am at Brian underscore Kaplan on Twitter, and I also blog for Econlog, one word. 
Awesome. Thank you so much, Brian, again, for taking your time today. We appreciate it. And we look forward to reading your upcoming work. All right. Great. Glad to be serviced. Talk to you later.